This week's episode is brought to you by Flybaby app, whose mission is to make travel accessible and easy for women and families. Forget about lugging heavy baby equipment through airports, stressing about packing and finding baby-friendly accommodations. With Flybaby app, you can rent everything you need to make your baby feel at home and they'll deliver it to your destination. Just download Flybaby app on your phone and get ready for summer because travel just got easier. And as a special discount for Common Sense listeners, Flybaby app is offering a 20% discount on your first rental when you use promo code COMMONSENSE. That's flybabyapp.com and use promo code COMMONSENSE. This week's episode is also brought to you by Cabrita Goat's Milk Formula. If your formula-fed baby experiences eczema, reflux, constipation, or other tummy troubles, you might have to try a new formula. For some babies, cow's milk formula is too tough on their sensitive digestive systems, and that shows up in all kinds of uncomfortable symptoms. But goat's milk is gentler on the tummy, and research suggests that it moves through the system at a similar rate to breast milk quicker than cow's milk. Cabrita is a naturally easy to digest formula that starts with gentled goat milk and just might be the perfect solution if your formula fed baby has tummy or skin troubles associated with cow's milk formula. Right now they're offering common sense pregnancy, parenting, and politics listeners a free tin of Cabrita's goat milk formula. Just email them at hello at cabrita.ca. Cabrita is K-A-B-R-I-T-A dot C-A. And tell them you heard about them on Common Sense. Give them your address. They'll send you the formula. Offer valid for U.S. residents only. Go check them out at cabritausa.com. Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast, where we have smart conversations about all that and then some. I'm the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which helps women and their partners to navigate pregnancy, prenatal care, labor, and birth like a boss, which is no easy feat here in the American maternity care system. I worked as a labor and delivery nurse for almost 20 years, and during that time, I saw women who were large and in charge of their prenatal and birth experiences, and women who were so beaten down by the process, they simply did as they were told. This latter group of women was the one I set out to help because doing as they were told wasn't working out so good for anyone. They were being told to consider themselves as a risk factor, as a potential complication, as something in the way of what truly mattered, the baby. They were being told how to eat, think, feel, behave, and most importantly, how to mother during their pregnancy. The thing is, though, motherhood exists on a really wide spectrum. There is no one perfect way to eat, think, feel, behave, or mother. If we have about, what, 4 million babies born in the U.S. every year, then we have 4 million ways to go about it. Sure, there are some commonalities because becoming a parent is a universal experience, but the minute-by-minute, day-by-day choices that come with pregnancy are unique to each woman, family, and baby. That's why we have to learn to navigate the system, right? To make sure we are large and in charge of what happens to us. Anyway, that's what the book and this podcast are about. So, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. Now, last week I talked about 
what's been happening along the U.S.-Mexico border with you know family separation of asylum seekers. And I told you that this week, Sarah Bond with Circle of Health International will be with us to tell us what she's seen recently, what's different, and what people can do about it. We'll be talking with Sarah in just a little bit, but first, let's dip into some listener questions. Let's see, we got one here from Dita. Hi, Jeannie. My husband doesn't want to go with me to any of my prenatal appointments because he says he feels too out of place there as the only man in my doctor's office. I have an ultrasound coming up next appointment. How do I make him want to go? Signed, Dita. Well, Dita, in my experience, you can't make anybody want to do something they don't want to do. You can't make your husband want to go. But you can tell him that it would mean a whole lot to you. You can tell him that you want to experience the ultrasound with him at your side and see all your baby's bits and pieces together. You can tell him that most men absolutely go to their wife's ultrasound and oftentimes other prenatal visits and that you want him to be there too, to have this experience with you. You can tell him that you need his support. You can tell him all of the reasons why you want him to go. And then once you've expressed your thoughts and wants as clearly and honestly as you can, it's his turn. You can ask him why he has so much hesitation if he still feels like he doesn't want to go. But if he still doesn't want to go, then you really can't make him. You can express your disappointment and then you can line up somebody else to go with you. You know, I don't know if this is a cultural thing or an ego thing or a fear thing that he just can't get past. Of course, it could also be that your husband, you know, maybe your husband is pretty darn selfish, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here and suggest that you look for a deeper reason for why he doesn't want to accompany you. That said, you don't have to go to your appointment alone. You can ask your sister, your mother, your auntie, your best friend, your mother-in-law. I know it's not what you wanted, but What else can you do, honey? Also, make sure you have plenty of support when it comes to your birth plan. Does your husband want to be there for that? Is he iffy about it? Then make sure you have other people on your support crew, because if your husband can't handle being the only dude in the doctor's office, he might not handle being the only dude in the delivery room all that well either. And you deserve to have all the support that you need. Get yourself some women to be there with you. I don't know if that's what you wanted to know, Dita, but I'll be thinking about you. Okay, let's take a quick break and then let's come back for one more letter. We're back and I want to answer one more listener email. Hi, Jeannie. I listened to your episode a few weeks back about labor pains and epidurals and I want to know if you had epidurals or had all natural births and which did you like better? What's more painful, getting the epidural or having contractions? Signed, Christine. Hi, Christine. So I've talked about this um, in the book and probably far too much on the podcast, but I've had four babies, three epidurals, and one unmedicated or what people like to call a natural birth. All were vaginal deliveries. I planned on having a unmedicated natural birth with baby number one, but after about 24 hours in labor and not a lot of progress, I got an epidural, I took a nap, and when I woke up a couple of hours later, I was completely dilated and pushed my baby out fairly quickly. With baby number two, which was my unmedicated birth, 
I had her at a midwife's office because we were uninsured at the time and I couldn't afford a hospital birth and um, I couldn't certainly couldn't afford an epidural. And, you know, at my midwife's office, that wasn't an option anyways. Her labor was so fast, though, that I didn't ever really want, need or have time to get one. Babies three and four, I had epidurals for both. Now, remember, I was a labor and delivery nurse, so I had access to all kinds of really, really great care. And part of that was, um, you know, I knew my epidural team and I felt really, really comfortable with that. I knew I knew what I wanted. I knew when I wanted those epidurals, too. Now, do I wish they'd been unmedicated? No, not really. I waited until I was pretty far along in labor and contracting well. I felt, you know, I felt plenty. I had safe births and I don't have a single regret. Now, what hurt more, contractions or the epidural? Contractions. To me, it was contractions. Seriously, the only part about an epidural that really hurts for most people um, is the local anesthetic they give so that the rest of the procedure doesn't hurt. That local anesthetic hurts, you know, it's sort of like the Novocaine shot that you get when you go to the dentist. It hurts for about 10 seconds, maybe. And um, then the rest of the, the epidural procedure doesn't really hurt. It just feels weird. It's really uncomfortable to have to hold still while the anesthetist puts the epidural in your back. But otherwise, it's not usually a painful procedure. Just kind of weird. What I'm guessing, Christine, is that you're trying to decide whether or not to have an epidural yourself, right? Here's my suggestion. Wait and see. You don't have to decide right now unless, you know, of course, you're deciding whether or not to have your baby at a hospital. If you're not having your baby at a hospital, well, then an epidural isn't an option. Um, But if you are, like most women are, wait and see. I always recommend that women prepare for an unmedicated labor because they have the least complications um, and also because you don't know what kind of coping techniques you're going to need until you're in labor. And if the anesthetist isn't available to give you your epidural, you're going to have to use those to get through. Um, I think it's really important to be flexible. Epidurals are just tools you can use to do a hard job, which is having your baby. There are other tools you can use too, like hypnobirthing or Lamaze techniques, massage and warm baths, deep breathing and relaxation, IV narcotics, laughing gas. You can follow my suggestions in the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, for how to make step-by-step decisions during labor and birth. Um, And then, you know, see what happens. You might find that labor is easier than you'd anticipated and you don't need an epidural. You might find that labor is a whole lot harder than you anticipated and that you do need one. Wait and see, Christine, and I'll be thinking good thoughts about you and your baby. Okay, let's take one more quick break and then let's get on the line with this week's guest, Sarah Bond with Circle of Health International, who's going to talk about what she's seen at the border. We want to thank, say thanks to our sponsors, Flybaby App, a brilliant company that's making travel easier and more accessible for parents. We had a chance to grab Kate Robart, one of their founders, for a hot minute to get her three best travel tips for parents hitting the road this summer. Kate, what have you got for us? Our Flybaby top three travel tips for traveling with your little one are, number one, Fly during nap time. Number two, bring lots of snacks. They're not only entertainment, but they're also bribery. And number three, rent a proper crib so everyone is well-rested and happy while on vacay. Wonderful. 
great suggestions. Thanks again, Kate, and Fly Baby app. And don't forget, listeners get their first rental at 20% off when you use Common Sense at checkout. Okay, we're back. And let's get to this week's guest. Sarah Bonds is Executive Director and Founder of Circle of Health International, which is a nonprofit organization based in Austin, Texas, that works with uh, immigrants and refugees in um, crisis situations all over the world. And she's been on the podcast before. Uh, That was back in September, uh, I think it was episode 89. Um, And she talked about the impact of Hurricane Harvey. So today she's back to tell us what's going on on the border for families experiencing separation. Hey, Sarah, it's Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, some of our listeners are going to recognize your voice because you were back, you were here on the podcast back in September on 86. episode 89 to talk about the impact of Hurricane Harvey. And today you're back because we're going to talk about what's going on on the border for families experiencing separation, right? So that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. yeah. You don't sound too, too terribly happy, but before we get into (laughs) this, let's, let's just ask our first question. Who are you and what do you do? Sure. So my name is Sarah Bonds. And I am the founder and CEO of Circle of Health International, an international aid-based organization working with moms and babies, and we're headquartered in Austin, Texas. All right. So you've worked with refugee families on the border for a long time, helping to support maternal health care needs, correct? Yes. We've been there since like a, a year ago today, or sorry, Four years ago today, 2014, July 4th, was our first trip down there. And that was in response to uh, an unprecedented number of unaccompanied minors. Is that correct? Yes, that was what was being referred to at the time as an exodus of unaccompanied minors. Yeah. So what's different now? Nothing. And this is the part that is hard for... Americans or any of us really who consume media to get our heads and our hearts around is that it isn't different. Um, This is the same thing that's been happening for four years. Um, There have been, I mean, the, we have seen only um, families that are not intact for the last four years, whether the separation occurred at border patrol at detention or in the home country. um, The, families that we see are not intact. So it's a lot of different iterations of families, Um, moms with kids, dads with kids, extended relatives with kids, aunts, uncles, cousins, Um, but rare. I mean, I can't recall a family that we've seen with a a mom and a dad and a kid in four years. Hmm. So this weekend you went to the border and what did you see and what did you do? Well, so for four years, we've been helping to staff the same clinic. It's hosted by Catholic Charities um, in McAllen, Texas. And so the clinic has had many different iterations based on funding and need and access and all sorts of things. But the way that the clinic looks now is that it is housed inside of a respite center 
which is about two blocks away from the bus station in downtown McAllen. And so the people that are seen in this respite center have been released from Border Patrol, picked up by Catholic Charities, and then brought to this respite center where they get a shower and a warm meal, um, a change of clothes, a backpack with um, toothpaste and shampoo, new shoes. Um, and we try to have a clinician on site in this clinic that's a room in the back of this respite center for people to see every day. Um, and so this weekend, my husband, who's a pediatrician here in Austin, and I went down to staff the clinic. Um, and so what he was seeing was no different than what we've seen every day for four years in this clinic. Kids with respiratory infections, colds, flus, lice, mites, scabies, any the things you would contract if you'd been on a road trip or camping for two months, which is what essentially most of these folks have been doing. Um, every once in a while, you see some more severe injuries. There was a man who fell off a train along the way, so he definitely had some broken things, um, bones and his, probably his ribs. Um, we saw some chicken pox. We saw um, maybe like eight or 10 pregnant women who were visibly pregnant. Um, there may have been other women who were pregnant and they just didn't know that they were pregnant. Um, so in those contexts, we have a Doppler on site that we are able to let them hear the heartbeat and that's super reassuring to them. Um, but really it's, you know, it's just, um, it's a lot of first aid and distribution of Tylenol and Advil and Midol and Dramamine and things like that. Um, and then when we can, and when people, um, are going to be able to access it. We try to arrange for follow-up care for wherever it is they're going because this is just a really quick stop. Um, they are not staying in McAllen. They have been released from Border Patrol in McAllen. They will get on a bus <laughs> within hours of release and go someplace else. So if we also try to find pro bono Spanish-speaking um, follow-up care for certainly the kids with chickenpox, the guy with the broken ribs, um, the women who may or want maternal care, um, help with labor support, those sorts of things. So what we're seeing in the media right now and what is grabbing the public's attention is the intentional family separation situation for families that mm -hmm. are seeking asylum. And mm -hmm. is are you saying that this situation hasn't changed over the past four years, that we're seeing exactly the same thing? Yes. Families have always been separated and always detained. Um, it has changed based on, I mean, circumstances we've been trying to identify for four years. It seems pretty random um, based on the will or the whim of the people at Border Patrol or the people who find the folks when they're arriving or passing through the border. Um, the If there has been a change, it is in the required detention. Um, people have been being detained or have that proper grammar. Um, they've been being detained. They've been detained. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, it was elective based on the officials who encountered them. The thing, the difference now is that it's required or was required, but that the detention itself was not new and the separation of families in that detention was not new. What's new now is it, it's it really does like semantics. Explain. 
What do you mean by that? Um, so um, Joe works at Border Patrol, and on this particular day, 20 families arrived. Joe, up until this executive order passed, Joe could decide on his own whether or not he thought that these families needed or these individuals needed to be detained. He could or he could not recommend detention. What the executive order changed was that it required that Joe detained them. But up until then, Joe had the it was up to him to decide whether or not people should be detained. Did Joe now, also have the discretion whether or not to put children and their mothers in separate facilities? No, um, that is a federal regulation, <clears throat> and it's based on you know safety measures advised by ICE advisory boards that children should not be detained with adults. So now what we're seeing is a volume we haven't seen before. If all families have to be nope, detained. That's not no? different either. Okay. Nope. Tell me what we need to know. I know. Sarah. Tell me what we need to know. <laughs> well, I mean, what we need to know is that America has always had a problem with immigration. We're a country founded on racism. We're a country founded on the separation of mothers and babies. We've been doing this to various populations for hundreds of years. What we're doing now is no different. What is different is a 24-hour news cycle. What's different is a like, hey, look over here at this most recent horrendous thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. But it isn't. It isn't new. I mean, this is this is stuff that the Democrats passed four years ago. I mean, we don't like to talk about that, but Obama deported a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Fifty-seven thousand immigrants came through the Texas border last year. It's not a small number. Mm -mm. Um, so these numbers are not, they're not smaller. They're not bigger. They are, they are pretty on par for the month of July. And what we, what we know, because we've been doing this work for four years is the numbers are really based on weather patterns. Like, is it, is it good weather to travel? Is it bad weather to travel? The, the numbers are based on the, the availability of jobs. Is it picking season for different things in different parts of the country? And can these people arrive in Virginia and go to work immediately working in the fields or working in a factory? That is what these, these numbers and these peaks and valleys um, in, in people coming across the border are actually based on. Okay. So what do you think about this? What do you think about the fact that I all of a sudden all eyes are on this situation? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think, I mean, I know there's a part of me that's grateful for that. Um, there's a part of me that's feeling a little snarky about it. Like where I've been trying to tell this story for four years, where have mm -hmm. people been? Mm -hmm. We had an MSNBC film crew down to the Valley, the Rio Grande Valley two years ago. They didn't even run the story. We had a New York times reporter down a couple months ago. She got pulled off the story and sent to the border to cover um, when Trump sent the national guard out. Like this is not, it's just this, this isn't, this, no one will tell the story. And until someone tells the story and tells it over and over and over again, I think people have been hesitant to believe that this was true because it is so horrendous, but it is true and it isn't going to change. And so while executive orders have been passed that should hopefully keep people together, it's not going to change anything. They're still going to be detained. They're still going to be separated. Um, it won't be forcible. It'll be elective. Um, and what so do you mean by that? I oh, forcible and elective, meaning that 
we'll go back to Joe, the border patrol guy, and he'll have his discretion. I see. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so what I, what I want to really encourage your listeners to do is to pick a pace that is sustainable for them in which to engage with this and commit to that because this is a marathon. It isn't a sprint. This isn't something people need your attention about right now. They need your attention about it in November and in April and two years from now. Um, And it's bigger than like, oh, my God, I need to make a donation to this legal aid organization or, oh, my God, my kids have so much, so many toys. I'm going to send some toys down. That's not that's not I mean, that's thoughtful. And we need, you know, legal aid organizations need the funding and the children arriving need the toys. But much more importantly, we need people to be doing the long game work which is doing your own work in your household about where your racial biases are um, in your community, making sure that the elected officials are people from these communities to represent them. Um, and then to, you know, to make consumer based choices, are you supporting companies that do or don't support the kind of immigration policy or elected officials that you would like to see? Like it's, there's, it's a ripple effect and it isn't, the problem is that Trump has, you know, he's a reality TV star and he's really good at making us all feel like the new thing every week is the most important thing. But all of these things are important and they were important four years ago. They will be important four years from now. So pick your thing and hunker down because this is a long game. Yeah. Yeah. All really important points. Um, let's bring the conversation back to, you know, what is probably most applicable for our listeners, which is sharing the experience of what women are going through as mothers. Um, you know, what is it like Mm -hmm. for women who have been, you know, on a road trip camping for two months and they're pregnant? Yeah. I mean, one of the women we saw this weekend, she was eight months pregnant. She had her two-year-old with her. We asked her how many kids she had. She said five. We said, oh, where are the other three? She said, Honduras. And, I mean, she had to make a choice of which kid to bring with her and which three to leave behind. Mm. And, you know, we've all, we all know that scene from Sophie's Choice, you know, yeah. where the white lady is making a decision about her white children to put on the train. But this is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Families are having to leave family members behind because they can't afford to bring everybody. And those are mothers having to make those decisions. That's yeah. just like gut wrenching. They have to walk um, out the door knowing they kissed their babies to, you yeah. know, asleep for the last time. Yeah. And they probably yeah. will never see them again. It is quite possible. It yeah. is quite possible. Oh my um, God. The world is hard. Clinically. I know. I mean, clinically the stuff is not rocket science. You know, we see a lot of yeast infections. You'd have an yeast infection if you wore the same pair of underwear for two months, you yeah. know? So we need like, that's like a really comp, like a, a thing that we run out of at the clinic a lot because that's not standard stuff. People think to send along um, menstrual health project products, pads, underwear, bras, um, you know, those are, these are just all very real like the data. I mean, I just like, I can't imagine having my period with all of this, right. right? Like where, where do you, you're like on the road from Honduras to McAllen, Texas, and you just, you get your period. What yeah. the hell do you do? Yeah. You're like leaves. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's all like pretty, 
pretty hard for us to get our heads and hearts around. And I know that I, I sit in a unique position in this and that I, I get to do this for a living every day. So at the end of my day, when I hear the news, I've spent my day actively working towards it. So I don't have the same response to it that say people who work in like car sales or something mm-hmm. else feel mm-hmm. because they aren't actively working to, to address it. Um, and I also recognize that because I get to go there and I get to like look people in the eye and ladle soup and like, you know, do Dopplers and help, you know, like connect with humanity mm-hmm. in this regard. I also, I also have to get the gift of interacting with it differently. But I think that like one of the things my husband and I have been talking a lot about is that I think those of us who live in red states are feeling this, this crisis differently than people who live in blue states. I had a very sad conversation with my sister yesterday who lives in Massachusetts. She just felt so overwhelmed. And I'm like, you have Elizabeth Warren. What in the world do you have to feel overwhelmed by? You know, like, you live in a state that will absolutely make sure that you have health care. Like you and you're white and you've got access to stuff. Like I live in Texas. This place is crazy <laughs> and it's been crazy forever. It's unlikely to be any less crazy in four years. Mm-hmm. So I think another, another nugget that I'd like to pass on to your listeners who have the privilege and luxury of living, living in blue states, even purple states is find, find a thing in a red state to invest in. And whether it's your money or, you know, calling them up and being like, hey, I'm a really good admin person. Can I, can I help with Google Sheets or like developing lists? I would also encourage people to come to the red states and help because we are tired. You know, these marches that happened all over the country this weekend, you know how many people were at the March in McAllen? Hmm. 20. Oh my goodness. You know why? Because we're doing the work. Yeah. We don't have time to go to marches. Yeah. And I need, we need those people showing up in Brooklyn and Portland and LA and reminding the media that this is a thing that everybody cares about, but we also, we need you. Um, and we need you to listen to us because we know how to do this. We don't need you to come here and tell us how to do it. We just need you to come and help us. Yeah. Stand side by side, mop the floor, stock the shelves, um, drive the bus, whatever it is. We really, you know, the next family vacation people have, go to Mississippi, go to Florida, go to South Dakota, go to the places where the people who are the most vulnerable are, are feeling this every day and be of service because we really need, we need, we need bodies. So, some of our listeners will hear this and they'll say, okay, well, where do I go? I'm, I'm, go- I'm coming. Where shall I go? <laughs> okay. Okay, Sarah, well, I'll I mean, be there. <laughs> where? <laughs> Great. I'm so glad. Um, so there are, there are so many different ways. I would really encourage folks to look out four months, look out six months from now, because all of this work will still need to be happening. You know, people right now are overwhelming our inboxes at Circle of Health. If we want to come, we're coming. We want to come. No, no, don't come now. Come in October when everybody's gone and people have looked someplace else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's a homeless shelter, whether it's an abortion rights organization, whether it's an LGBTQ network that you want to support, call them up. Ask them when is a good time for you to come that works for them. 
and then and then come. And I know that like that is not a realistic option for a lot of people, but the internet is an amazing tool in this regard. You know, promote southern or red state organizations. Um, I mean, that's one of the things the Women's March people have been really awesome about. Um, especially during this last thing, they are promoting these tiny little organizations. I mean, Raices, this group that has now raised over thirty million dollars on Facebook, mm-hmm. they they have their their fundraising goal was fifteen hundred dollars. Wow! Like they're just a tiny little Texas organization. So, you know, the ACLU, quite honestly, doesn't need any more of your money. They raised enough money after the election when everybody was making their donations um, to sustain them for a while. But find the small local groups that aren't getting the national play and then make a a reminder on your phone to check in with them in four months because they'll have all the time in the world for you then mm-hmm. right now it's pretty overwhelming with yeah. a lot of media and a lot of volunteers. I mean, the, the center this weekend in McCown was pure chaos. There were just so many people and so much stuff. And that's really great. The stuff lasts, you know, the stuff goes into containers and they can continue to pull from that months from now, but people, the like the human time and skill and talent needed for the social change that we want to see needs to be a steady flow, not just in these spikes. Yeah. So, you know, that, which is great. Like the South is a great place to come in December or in February. It's good to know. Great place. So what's going to happen to that eight month pregnant woman from Honduras? Where will she have her baby? Well, well, hopefully she's going to call us and we're going to help her find somebody to provide her some labor support. Um, you know, she didn't seem, I mean, she's got five, this is her fifth kid. She was such a pro. She was like, eh, I'm, you know, I'm eight months pregnant. We'll be fine. I got a sister. She's going to meet me in Miami. Um, you know, she was much more concerned about the children that she had left behind and this one that she was, I mean, she didn't come into the clinic to see us. She came in for her checkup, she came for the two-year-old that she was carrying in her lap and was mm-hmm. like, this kid's got a, a runny nose and a sore throat. And then we were like, oh, and by the way, how are you? You know, like moms mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. So um, she will, I'm pretty sure, you know, we checked her, you know, her ankles looked great. She had a headache, but mostly because she was dehydrated. Um, she <laughs> she had, well, about her pregnancy, she had really a pretty remarkable perspective. Um mm-hmm. But, you know, she she's just getting through her days one at a time right yeah. now. And, um, you know, we did in a, when we first started doing this work in McAllen, we were lucky enough to participate in an assessment with the Center for Torture Survivors at a Bellevue Hospital in New York. They had a team at this clinic in McAllen. And together we did the survey to determine the rates of PTSD that were coming through the clinic. And we knew they were going to be really high. Like that was anticipated. So it came in at 83% of the people that we see at this clinic have PTSD. But the shocking part was that it wasn't, PTSD wasn't acquired in Honduras. It was acquired at Border Patrol. And what we learned about that is that when you grow up, when you're born into a hostile environment or into a violent place, especially as a kid, you acclimate to that. Mm -hmm. And while it's super stressful, you know, your stress hormones, rather than spiking now and again, have like a relatively predictable Mm -hmm. Um, it's predictable violence. It's expected. 
But when you spend all of this time, you make these insanely seeming decisions to walk for two months to get to a place that you don't know and you aren't welcome by most, by, certainly by the government. Um, you think that when you get there, I mean, it's America. Like this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. They're going to be good to us. And then you get to border patrol and you're treated so badly. That's where the trauma occurs. And so, you know, when we were for four years, when we, when we have the opportunity to ask the deeper questions in the clinic about where did you come from and what were you leaving? That's not what brings up the tears. What brings up the tears is what happened to me in America. And that is really heartbreaking as an American. We, I mean, I'm white. My, all my relatives were immigrants who came and were, you know, as far as the stories go, welcomed with open arms and, you know, settled and made their lives. And it just is so heartbreaking that we are a country that does not treat everyone that way. Is there a particular person or story that you're thinking back on? a particular trauma that occurred? Yeah, there was this little boy that we saw. Um, he was like four, four and a half. And he was really scared of my husband, um, who is like the, the like kindest dude you've ever met. And he's just like a, you know, he's like a hobbit. He's really like friendly and happy. And he's a pediatrician, so like he knows how to win children over. Sure. And um, the kid just cried when he saw my husband and just like held on to his mom so tightly and my husband needed to take his temperature. And so he was trying to communicate to him that the thermometer wasn't going to hurt and he wasn't going to hurt him. It was just so clear that so many of these children had the people who looked like us, the white people that they had encountered had not been kind to them. Yeah. Yeah. And so in addition to, you know, medicine and clinical care and follow-up, what we are able to do in this clinic is to provide humanity. Mm-hmm. To, to try to change the the trend for these people that hopefully from here on out, you are going to encounter Americans who are glad you are here mm-hmm. and who are here to help you be here. Mm-hmm. Um, that part is very, very hard. That's probably the thing that our listeners can do the most is when you encounter immigrants and, you know, people who have come from other countries Welcome them. Be welcoming. We're all immigrants, you know, if from yep. if only for a few generations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sarah, as always, it's really enlightening to talk to you. I really appreciate your sharing what you do and what you've seen and a really um, realistic perspective on what's happening at the border. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. And let's send, let's send listeners to your website. Where should they go? Great. It, so it's www.cohintl.org. So Circle of Health International, abbreviated, cohintl.org. And you can just Google Circle of Health. will come up. Yeah. Um, Yep. And we, we have a lot of great pictures on our Instagram account from this weekend. I did a lot of live postings from the clinic. Um, and we, we really try to keep people up to date on things as they are happening. But, you know, we weren't just in McAllen this weekend. We had a team training healthcare. We trained 50 healthcare providers in Haiti this weekend on MVAs. We fed 
I think another 800 people in Ghouta in Syria. Um, this refugee crisis or immigration crisis in America is getting a lot of play right now, but we're working every day around the globe to make sure that moms and babies are safer than they were the day before. And I'm just so grateful for you for letting us to come on and tell your folks about it. Anytime you want, Sarah. Thank You're welcome you. on the podcast. Anytime you want. Yeah. All right, babe. Thanks. We'll talk again. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. That's it for this week, y'all. Thanks again to our sponsors, Flybaby App. And don't forget, Common Sense listeners get a special 20% off discount on their first rental when they use the promo code Common Sense. Thanks, too, to Cabrita Goat's Milk Formula, who is giving Common Sense Pregnancy listeners a free tin when they email hello at cabrita.ca. Our guest today was Sarah Bond with Circle of Health International. You can learn more about her at C-O-H-I-N-T-L dot org. You can learn more about me at genefogner.com. My book is Common Sense Pregnancy, and you can find that everywhere books are sold. Email me, gene at genefogner, tweet me at genefogner, and find Common Sense Pregnancy on Instagram. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Someone will look at me.